the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to episode number eighteen of the Paul Leslie Hour. And I have a question for you. Do you hate your job? I want you to be honest with me. Tell me, do you hate your job? I know that there's a lot of you out there. You do a lot of pretending. You go to your job, and a part of your job is to act like you like it. Some of you might be waiters. Some of you might be customer service representatives. You might be a lawyer. You might be a doctor. You might be a business person. You could be anything. Well, the guest on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour is a guy named Mike Veck. He doesn't think you should hate your job. Now, that might seem a little convoluted. He's not telling you to change your attitude. Maybe he is, but maybe he's telling your boss, the company, the culture that you work for, that they should change their attitude. He wrote a book called Fun is Good. A lot of people have this idea, it's work, you've got to be serious. You're not supposed to have fun at work. Well, Mike Veck is somebody who thinks that that's a load of crap. And that's one of the reasons why I was inspired to interview him. He's a part of this business service group called Fun is Good, the Fun is Good team. He also is a businessman. He owns the Charleston River Dogs, a few other minor league baseball teams, the St. Paul Saints, some restaurants. He lives part of the time in Charleston, South Carolina, and part of the time in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think he might have some answers that you're looking for. Fun is good, and I hope you agree after you listen to this interview. Mike Veck has been described as an ambassador of fun and passion, a marketing and promotion zealot, a baseball enthusiast in his own words, a baseball guy through and through, an author, speaker, baseball team owner, restaurateur, and we're pleased to welcome him here. Thank you very much, Paul. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Where would you say this philosophy of fun comes from? Well, in 1991, in November of 1991, I came to St. Paul um, with a merry band of investors, and our idea was to start an independent league and run an independent team in St. Paul. It happened to be seven miles from the Metrodome, where the uh, Twins, of course, play Major League Baseball, and no one had ever operated a minor league team that close to a major league operation. And as you can imagine, the pundits all predicted that when we opened in June of 1993, we would fail quickly and, you know, disappear without much fanfare. Luckily, that was not true. 25 years later, we're flourishing in a new ballpark. And I felt that the important thing to do was to position the club with three words, fun is good. It made it much easier to hustle the idea that we were going to have fun rather than we're going to play great baseball because if you want to see great baseball, obviously you would go right to the then Metrodome and and 
admire the twins. <laughs> so the positioning line as it remains today was fun is good, and we emphasize the fan experience, the silliness of promotions, and by the way, you'll see great AAA baseball if the pitching's good. Well, I think that most people would agree that fun is good. I can say that I worked for a company at one point that seemed to have an allergy to fun. <laughs> Why do you think that some companies are fun and some aren't? Well, I think it comes from the top. And I think so many times people believe mistakenly that you must be really serious. I mean, I take my business very seriously, whether it's the business of baseball or or writing, or or speaking, as you do. But I don't take myself very seriously. And I think that they forget one important thing in the equation of fun is good, and that is that happy people are six times more productive. And so it has everything to do with, as you said, keeping employees happy rather than this aversion to it, and the face they project in dealing at any point with customers is that they're having a good time. It cuts down on days missed. It cuts down on absenteeism and tardy. It, it, it just makes good economic sense. And I think that people more and more, especially with the advent of millennials, whom I love, are saying, you know what? I'm going to work at eight or nine, according to research, different companies in the course of my career, as opposed to the three or four that my parents did. And by gosh, I'm going to have some fun. <laughs> I was born the wrong time, Paul. How did that happen? <laughs> well, speaking of being born, take us back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and what, what kind of environment it was for you growing up well i'm i'm uh, i'm one of nine children and every one of the aforementioned children were born in a different state and so we were a transient family uh, my father was in the baseball business my mother was the first publicist for the ice capades and they traveled from ball club to ball club so i was born in tucson Arizona and my sister Maria, for example, was born in, in, in California, in, in Los Angeles, and my brother Greg back to New Mexico. And the reason that's important, I think, is that we became very comfortable being outsiders. Um, I watched very carefully my mother and father. I don't believe we were ever perceived, or they were ever perceived as carpetbaggers. So wherever we happened to live was home. And that had a huge impact on me. I loved that they made their living kind of like a, a movable feast, with apologies to Mr. Hemingway. Also, we grew up in a house where money was never discussed. No one ever said, boy, this was a great score, or this is going to make a lot of money. Sometimes there was money, it was my observation, sometimes there wasn't. But it's important in my upbringing, looking back from the age of 66 now on how I was raised, 
that creativity was emphasized joy. My father used to say, whatever you do, McGill, have fun and be good at what you do. And so I realized as I, as I grew up that, that there was never any pressure to go be a lawyer or go be a doctor or go be successful in terms of money. Success was always in terms of joy. And boy, I realize now what a huge gift that was. So who is the funnest person that you know? Well, I think my partner in many of my ventures um, now, Bill Murray is. I think he's I think he epitomizes what is good about people. I think he epitomizes living your life joyously and being open to new experiences. And I suggested that Bill Murray years ago play my father in a in a film adaptation of Eckes and Rex simply because he reminds me so much of my father. And my father was a joyous man. It was a privilege for me to be able to work with him. Not because he was my he was my father. Baseball kept us from being estranged. It gave us gave us something in common. But after I worked on the road playing music for three or four years, I went to work with him in Chicago. And six years later, there was nothing left to say to my old man. I admired the way he worked. He operated by osmosis. Almost everything we do in any one of our ballparks now in some ways came from learning by osmosis from him. He didn't pontificate. He never sat you down and said, okay, today class, we're going to learn. He just made it irresistible to watch how he interacted with employees, how he interacted with fans. And, you know, as much as we can, uh, we've emulated that. So currently, Bill Murray, and in the past, before his death, you know, my dad. Been very fortunate to know some fun people. From watching your father interact with people, what's something that you learned from watching that? My father was entirely non-judgmental. And that just just think about that for a moment. To be non-judgmental. He just accepted people at face value. So he treated everyone the same way. He treated everyone with dignity. He treated everyone with respect. He called them always by their proper given name, something I thought was kind of strange, but, but, but kind of lovable in its own right. But he didn't have to practice. You know, he, he, the commissioner of baseball, you know, Bowie of Kuhn was treated no differently than the fellow, you know, driving dad to the airport for yellow cab. And that's a wonderful trait. Absolutely. Like like they say, you know, you can learn a lot about a person by how they treat your waiter, their waiter. Yes, there's there's no caste system and joy knows no boundaries and laughter. And actually he was tremendously curious about people. So he asked questions. And then, amazingly, he listened. He had no interest in talking about Bill Vec. He'd lived Bill Vec's life up to whatever point 
that particular conversation was taking place. So he had interest in people, and that curiosity served him well over the course of his 71 years. We're talking with Mike Vick. Anyone can visit the website. It's funisgoodteam.com. And you mentioned your partner in these ventures, Mr. Bill Murray. What is something about Bill Murray we would be surprised to learn? He has no entourage. Bill Murray negotiates his own deals. He doesn't travel with security or with advisors or with sycophants. He and I reside part-time in, in Charleston and, of course, he part-time in, in New York. But he is totally accessible. And that's something that people are shocked about. You know, I just had occasion to stay in the same hotel as Neil Diamond. And I can assure you, that's not a similar comparison. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone out there that may be just perhaps the CEO of a company, they're listening to this, or any kind of manager, and they're starting to look at themselves and they're thinking, gosh, we sure don't have any fun. <laughs> what would you tell them is the best way to have fun? Always find a couple of alter egos and play off them. There's always somebody within the confines of your company who kind of looks at life a little differently. And hiring practices, you'd, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was with the White Sox, I hired Dave Dombrowski, who's now president of the Boston Red Sox. And people were astounded that David Dombrowski and Mike Vick, who were so totally different, could have such fun working together as we did later with the Marlins and with the Tigers. Hire people who are different from you. You don't want to fill it with yes people. You want to fill it with contrarians and people who argue. So the first thing to do if your company's not having any fun is to find those people who venture outside the silos that are just killing corporate America and, and, and killing a lot of businesses. Communication now more than ever is important, and most companies are in the business in some way of communicating. And so it needs to be encouraged. And the number one way is to get to know one another and take time. You don't need to wear little smiley buttons going, have a great day. What you need to do is to really communicate and talk to people and listen. Ask them how their kids are. Ask them what they love outside of work. What do they spend their leisure time on? You know, Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, always said that you learn more about civilization by how they spend their leisure time than what jobs they work at. So try to get glimpses of people outside the office and inclusion. Great word right now, right, Paul? Everybody says, hey, we're going to be inclusive. (laughs) True. Make a dedication to it and mean it, whether it's department by department. You know, I'm fortunate. Uh, We've got a, uh, a ball game in St. Paul. And and we contribute. Everyone in the organization contributes and is expected to contribute ideas and new things to experiment with and new foods and the like. 
And there are always, always things that can be improved in any company, whether it's interaction among the um, employees or interaction with customers. Something you said that I thought was very interesting, you were mentioning about a civilization can be examined or you can learn about a civilization through their what they do for leisure. And as they say, baseball is America's pastime. You said before that you're a baseball man through and through. Why do you think baseball is America's pastime? And what do you think that says about our country? Well, if we don't louse it up, and I always preface it with, you know, it's it's endured in spite of the things over the years that we've done to it. You know, it's endured the the Black Sox scandal and gambling, and it's it's endured steroids, and it's endured the fear of a lack of parity in television. And I believe the reason is, number one, when people immigrated and came to this country, they were looking for things to attach themselves to that were the most American, something that they could have in common. And so whether you were on the the train at night going home from your job and you were a bricklayer or you were an attorney, you could talk about the white stockings and how they did and how they were playing. You know, you could talk about the Cubs, the hapless Cubs. And so I think that we were aided by people who came to this country and attached themselves, wanting to fit in. The second thing is, is the ebb and flow of the game lends itself to conversation. You know, if if you are at the 50-yard line, and yes, there's a tremendous amount of time between plays and, and the like, but you still have to be paying attention. You can drift in and out of conversations in, in baseball. You can talk at halftime or between, you know, in, in basketball or between periods with hockey, but nonetheless, all through the game, you can converse and you can discuss it. And I think those two elements are what really have made it. You know, Jeff Idelson from the Hall of Fame would say, of course, Mike, it's the traditions and, you know, it's the only sport, you know, where where you can recite the first eight or nine numbers of the hated Yankees uniforms and and of course it's a historical you can say 60 and it's and you know it's Ruth and 61 and it's uh, Maris and then you know uh, 70 plus it's Bonds so uh, there's a language all its own of baseball that doesn't apply to other sports as you mentioned you live part of the time in South Carolina the home of the River Dogs, the Charleston River Dogs. Tell us, because Charleston, South Carolina, is such a mecca for diners. You can really, really eat well. Where do you think the best place to eat in Charleston is? <laughs> Boy, what a loaded question that is. Indeed. Um, and and I appreciate that because you got me on the spot, and I'm going to not suggest our own. I'm going to plug them shamelessly at the end. But I think that if you're reading trade journals right now, then, of course, you know that Husk is is on fire. McCready's Sean Brock is, you know, famous all over the all over the country, all over the world, arguably took training 
from my dear friend Robert Carter, who ran Peninsula Grill for years. And the thing about the thing about Charleston is that it kind of rose up out of nowhere, combining the Gullah aspects with Southern hospitality and the like. I, I if I had to, if you put a gun to my head, I'd say McCready's. And of course, I think Harold's Cabin that I own or co-own with Bill Murray and John Schumacher is a is a lovely tip of the hat to southern cuisine and kind of interesting things and then of course we have the Rutledge cab company but there are unbelievable numbers of restaurants opening literally on a weekly basis it's hard to go wrong with many of them but I go to McCready's first before I go anywhere else now speaking of your own restaurants the the Rutledge for example tell the listeners if they are to come into the restaurant, what do you in particular recommend that they get? This is, I, I'm going to sound so plebeian doing this, but the fact is is that we have won the last two years the best hamburger in Charleston, and that's not easy to do when you figure that that runs the gamut from people who make them with Kobe beef, you know, all the way all, all the way up and down the line. So I think you have to go right away to one of the burgers. Harold's Cabin, on the other hand, you would go right to the forage board, which is one of the most beautiful presentations I've ever seen in, in any restaurant, and it's meatless. We have a garden on the third floor, and so we we literally harvest almost everything that we serve from the third floor garden. How would you describe Charleston to somebody who had never been there? Charleston is a, a seaport town, so it has some fringes. It has some edges. It is very refined, as they say, south abroad. There's great civility. There's tremendous emphasis on food. There's tremendous emphasis on manners and decorum. You know, some people who find it difficult to integrate themselves into a a social structure would say, well, you have to be fifth or sixth generation. But my wife and I and family have lived in Charleston for 20-plus years. They're tremendous baseball fans. They're very bright. There's tremendous art and culture, emphasis on. It's becoming a real music town, Paul, which is something that's happened really in the last 10 years. And, you know, you can go 30 miles any direction except towards Fort Sumter into the ocean, and and it changes. It becomes a you know the deep south. But I, I was pleasantly surprised. I expected when we moved there from from my beloved St. Paul that we'd be there, you know, a couple of years, build a new ballpark, and and we stayed. You've written two books. The first one, Fun is Good. I'm curious, has anyone ever argued with you on that premise? Absolutely. You know, I bring out the heavy artillery. I, I've had more than my share of critics. I had a specific experience where I was introduced to speak at the Turner Center in Atlanta. And the gentleman introducing me, one, was upset that I was no longer the senior VP in charge of blah, 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 blah for the Detroit Tigers. 
and I was a minor league guy, and secondly, that I was talking about fun. And there were, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 people there, and they luckily did not feel the way he did and responded with, with great alacrity. And suddenly, because of the audience response, he you know, was saying, well, we could do this again. And I'm like, not really. I, I, I think, you know, you can't be condescending. So I, I ask simply an audience, is there a real geographic location known as Margaritaville? And people go, oh, I don't think so. But I was there about a month ago. I'd swear I was there. So... <laughs> You know, just like you're laughing, you know, Jimmy Buffett, another one of our partners on occasion, when he goes out on the road for 40 dates or whatever he does, his per caps are among the highest in the entertainment business. Now, is that because people really think that they're going to turn into parrot heads and live in Margaritaville? No, he's selling fun. He's selling the idea that we can all be 24, you know, sit by the ocean and have a uh, uh, and have a beer and listen to some island music, and for four hours we escape, you know, or or you take the aforementioned Mr. Murray who takes you on these flights of fancy, you know. I always go back to, <laughs> you know, imagine all the geniuses who who said to the Murray brothers when they came up with the idea of Caddyshack, hey, a movie about a gopher and a golfer won't be funny. Then turn around and ask how many people have seen it. And and you know there were guys who said, we're not going to make a movie about a gopher and a golfer because that couldn't be funny. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you like to be that guy? Hey, I turned down Caddyshack. Hey, you're a genius. (laughs) So, yes, There are people constantly who attempt to skewer the idea that you can have fun. You know, it's a very grim and serious and and serious business at at work. But I go back to 56% of the people in this country hate their job. And I think that's terrible. And Fran Zuli and Karen Chappell and the people from Fun is Good that we have collected over the years are the antithesis to that feeling. We've gone from hospitals where people are being asked to do two and a half times the jobs they were 15 years ago to financial houses. And that's my favorite because, of course, in 2008, the bankers took us right down to Primrose Path. People's farms were lost, people's homes, people's automobiles were repossessed. And suddenly companies were scrambling to try to do something for their employees that didn't cost money. Well, guess what the answer to that is? Fun. The same, the same antidote that existed before the crash in 2008 and right today. And I think that structurally, the workplace hasn't changed since the Industrial Revolution. And I think anything that, that creates conversation in the workplace is healthy changes the you know i mean the new byword for any of us is how we deal with change and really that's our attitudes about success and failure 
But anybody who's not admitting that the world today is is the number one premise is flexibility and change is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think really going to be unhappy when the truth settles in. You're so passionate about fun. You can you can hear it in your voice. You believe in it so much. It's wonderful. I I can tell you that that I've had a wonderful run. We have a ball club in St. Paul and this is the only self really self-serving message that I'll I'll say, but we did 118% occupancy last year, Paul. We seat 7210 people and we averaged 8600. It was seventh in all of minor league baseball, independent, which we happen to be, or affiliated, which Charleston happens to be. And I attribute that success to fun. People come here not to be preached at. They come to enjoy a ball game, but they want more than a ball game. They want affordable fun. And shockingly ex except for people like you i would also say that i have a daughter who was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa years ago and is blind and i apply the same tactics to attempting to make sense out of that and keep it fun because you know every one of your listeners right now as soon as i say my daughter rebecca is blind your listeners are thinking about their daughters and their granddaughters and their sisters. And I think that without fun, you can't survive tragedy. And so I, I think it makes sense medically. I think it makes sense emotionally. And it's just, it's like the WD-40 of life. It just makes it a little easier to get through. Well, as they say, laughter is the best medicine. You mentioned Franzuli. And he was telling me that your wife's favorite musician is the late Frank Zappa, who he shares initials with. You've mentioned music a couple times, Jimmy Buffett. I was hoping you could tell us what what kind of music do you enjoy? Well, I'm a I, I you know I'm no longer the biggest Bob Dylan fan in the world now that everyone's discovered the poet laureate of of, of certainly of Minnesota. But I think I'm one of those people who think that never was a Nobel more deserved than than Bob Dylan, who changed forever the way we think and the way we write music and the way we listen to music. And I'm sure that it's no different than Willie Shakespeare when people started to gather, you know, on the green and watch these monumental plays that that investigated the way people think. You know, I, I just came back a while ago from Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and I'm all over the map in terms of, of music, simply because I'm, I'm married to a woman who absolutely loves virtually every kind of music. She was a huge Frank Zappa fan. You know, as far as I was concerned, he led a, he led a merry band called the, the Mothers of Invention, but, you know, except for Reuben and the Jets, I didn't know much, uh, much about him. But we've done 150 concerts over the course of my career at all of the ballparks going back to. I'm dating myself with this one, Paul. Aerosmith was my first in 76 and Dr. John, you know, last year in St. Paul. So I, I think that ballparks 
Um, this year, I couldn't help but notice that the Cubs have uh, eight or ten different uh, music events and concerts scheduled. So I think there's a huge tie-in between baseball fans specifically and music and art. We we have the work of our ballpark in St. Paul is in the midst of 400 artists in Lower Town so that the entire ballpark features art everywhere. And I think that that art and music are really what define, you know, your fan base. And I think you have to feed people. I think they're multifaceted and, and interested. So, you know, you play Frank Zappa one, one moment, and of course you come back, and I wanted to be Sam Cooke. I spent the first 10 years of my life waiting to, so I could look like Sam Cooke. I just thought, man, oh, man. So I... <laughs> I think the R and B of the Drifters and the Brill Building and and was some of the greatest tunes ever penned. I'm also not sorry, you know, that that I got to see the Doors and Jimi Hendrix and Clapton, whom I've seen, you know, I don't know, six or eight times. So it's a it's it's just another aspect of people and how we interact with one another. Bill and I, uh, Murray, went down to Jazz Fest with with Libby, my wife, and the three of us just kind of bopped around trying different food and listening to bands that we'd never heard or bands like Trombone Shorty that we've heard before and love. So it's my first time seeing Stevie Wonder, baby. He's a little political for me, but he sure did play an hour of the greatest songs in the history of the world. (laughs) Wow. Well, this might be a question you're tired of of answering, but what is the greatest baseball song? <laughs> well, you know, I'd love to say because it's so obscure, "Catfish" by Bob Dylan, but I'm I'm not going to say that. I, you know, I was always partial to my mother. Swears that I went around for three years and said nothing, but I'm to say, "Hey, kid." So, you know, I love, say hey, say Willie, say hey. So I, I would have to be my pick. Talking baseball was great. I mean, there's no question. And and while he may have written it for that, I'm not, uh, I'm a John Fogarty fan, but I'm not going to list that one because it makes everybody's list, although I'm a huge Creedence Clearwater fan. So, <laughs> so I think say hey, say Willie was my... <laughs> Was my favorite. Tremendous number of baseball songs, which people don't realize. You just Google them and you say, wow. Yeah. And there's so many, you, you start hearing it and you say, yeah, I know this song. I know this song, too. There's a huge intersection there of baseball and music. So is there anything on the horizons with Mike Vick that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, I'm kind of I'm I'm fooling with a, a book now of the 35 greatest characters in the game, both well-known and not so well-known with David Fisher, who's done any number of of biographies of people. I think he's working on one now with William Shatner, and so we're fooling around with a book. I'm trying to fine-tune Harold's Cabin, and I got a ball club in Normal, Illinois, the Corn Belters, that that we're just kind of starting to turn our attention to and figure out what to do with it. So, you know, you stay busy. I taught for seven years at the Citadel. I'm going to take a 
a year off. I love teaching. It changed my life in terms of the way I look at the world and especially the way I interact with with millennials. But, you know, there's always something kind of cool to figure out. And, of course, I'm spending the summer with my beloved St. Paul Saints. So life's pretty darn good. Well, on that note, life's pretty darn good. What would you say is the best thing about being Mr. Vec? I got a great family. I have a great wife in Libby, and uh, it's and my son William Nitrain, Vec William from my father Nitrain, because I always wanted a nickname, and he's running the social media for, if you can believe it, a cricket league in Australia, and of course my daughter Rebecca, who is a potter and creates these wonderful clay works of art. So I just kind of, you know, they, they're my anchor. I, I can float out as far as I want out into the into the atmosphere, but, but they keep me tethered. Not just in Charleston, where this show broadcasts, but just given the, the way information spreads, it could be heard by people anywhere. What would you say to anyone listening in, totally open-ended, in closing? I think that everybody has a Charleston. I think everybody in the world has a place that they've always wanted to go and they haven't for some reason. And I can remember, I say this without hesitation, I'm going to die in Charleston. And when I went there, my sisters, and I got a lot of them, couldn't, they couldn't wait to ask me what a fellow like me was going to do. And I quote, in the deep south. And after the Mother Emanuel tragedy, for example, when the NAACP and the mayor of Charleston, Joe Riley, said that we had to have a River Dogs game as soon as possible because we needed to return to normal and start to heal. Everybody should take a chance on a town where they think they will be uncomfortable and try it because never have I been made to feel more welcome as an outsider than I was in Charleston. I've never forgotten that. My last question. If you were taking a test, you breezed through it, and you came to the last question, and the last question was, who is Mike Vick? What would we see that you wrote? I would love to be remembered as someone who made a difference in individual lives. That matters a great deal to me. I was, I had a next-door neighbor who was a basketball coach in Charleston, and he had cancer. And so I wrote commercials about him, and he was a, a mentor to my wife in gardening and, and keeping up the lawn. But he was a college basketball coach and a high school basketball coach. And the night that we had at Joe Riley Park for Coach Larry Riggs was amazing to me because people drove from all over the country to be there to honor him. And people from all different walks of life said the same thing to me. Mike, you can't imagine the difference that Coach Riggs made in my life. Coach Riggs, they, they loved him. And that profoundly impacted 
uh, me, obviously, since I'm recounting it to you. So I'd like to be remembered as somebody who one-on-one not made a not made a difference in terms of a large group, as my father's remembered for, and Satchel Page for older people, and Larry Doby for African Americans, but individually, one-on-one, taking the time and trying to help in my own small way. I think that's I'd like to be remembered that way. Well, our guest has been Mike Veck. The website, funisgoodteam.com. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it, Mr. Leslie. It made me think. So take care of yourself. And you too. And it's just Paul. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, Paul. Take All it right. easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Folks, I hope you enjoyed the Mike Veck interview. I happen to share his philosophy. I do think fun is good. Again, if you want more information, you can visit funisgoodteam.com. Now, something that I'm enjoying is giving stuff away. I like to give things away. It's fun. I'm going to give some of you a copy, in the order that I receive your emails, of the new Bill Murray album. Bill Murray album? That's right, Bill Murray, the actor that we all love, has an album out. It's called New Worlds. It's actually him, along with three classical musicians, Jan Fogler, Vanessa Perez, and Mira Wang, two of which have been guests on this show. All you have to do is go on thepaulleslie.com, click on Contact, write maybe one or two sentences what you thought of this interview with Mike Veck and your address in case you win. And if you're one of the first couple to do so, you get a copy of the album. I even pay the postage. Isn't that wonderful? If you haven't subscribed to the Paul Leslie Hour, consider doing so. It's absolutely free. You can do it on CastBox. You can do it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Google Play. I'm everywhere. Also, consider rating and reviewing the podcast. Anytime you do that, it helps other people find us. Well, folks, that's all I've got for now. I hope to see you on the next episode. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.